morning and welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. super early morning wake-up call out west and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we appreciate it. Welcome into the show on this Thursday. Everyone's trying to figure out what to do. How, how do we how do we go from here? Whether it's a restart, whether it's staying alive, staying viable. Um, there's just all of this uncertainty, and there's just never been a better time to take a really good look at uh, what you do. And and what I mean by that is, if you're a club, there's never been a time for you to 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 work with and and talk with your team and you know your your front office whether it's an ownership group or whatever and really look at how you do what you do uh whether that's bylaws whether that's policies whether that's you know organizational vision there's just never been a time better time than right now in this crisis uh, for many clubs, this is this is a rare moment where you can really take stock of what you're doing, how you're doing it, why you're doing it. And one of the things that we're seeing is this conversation is happening and, and, and these debates are ongoing, uh, but not just taking place in the club setting. They're also taking place at the league level. Now, there are different different structures of leagues. There's different types of leagues. Um, for example, the best setup for a league is when the clubs who are playing in that league own 100% of the league. They control 100% of the league. That means that if the if you have 20 teams, each of the 20 teams has one share in the league and decisions are made via voting by the 20 members. Um, that is the best case scenario. And when you look at other structures of leagues, you can find real issues with with the construct. There are leagues that are wholly owned by a non-member club, meaning that you have league owner here who doesn't own or operate any of the clubs within the league, and then you have the member clubs that are inside of that league. Now, depending on what the owner of the league decides and they've got to keep their, their members happy or, or they don't have a league to operate. Um, you know, that is, that, that, that is a a delicate balance uh, of how you come to a decision. But at the end of the day, those, those member clubs don't, uh, control their own destiny in terms of decision-making. Uh, there's still a league owner that can decide what they want to do at the end of the day. So it's not the best path to set up a league, but it can be workable. And and we see uh, leagues that are structured similar to that uh, here in the United States with the, the USL. The USL is owned by a separate entity from the member clubs, but the member clubs are allowed to express their, their opinions and, and, and voice their concerns, etc. But at the end of the day, they are not, uh, you know, they do not own an equal share in the league and they're not the ones voting to make decisions. And, uh, and, and, and so you also have a third piece, which is this hybrid ownership aspect. And uh, and that's where you have member clubs who own 
they might own equal shares in the league. They might not, depending on how the league is set up. But there's also a an outside investor, owner uh, of the league that is not a club owner operator. And that was Major League Soccer for a very long time. Um, they recently used a loan to, to buy out um, their third party. So as far as I know now, MLS um, has their, their um, complete control. The owner-operators have complete control of MLS LLC. Um, but it, th- these scenarios play out in different ways. And in moments of crisis, we, we really start to see you know, where we are. And, and if you're a club and you're looking in the mirror and you're trying to do an evaluation of who you are, why do I do the things I do? How are we doing them? How can we do them better? Uh, what are we learning during this crisis, etc.? cetera? Um, you know, these kind of internal retrospective conversations that are really, I think, critical. And I think these clubs should be having these conversations so that they can figure out how to grow coming out of this. How can they get better? How can they survive in the future? And how can they become even more financially sound, more viable going forward? Next Friday, the Bundesliga is is coming back to action, May 15th. And... That's exciting. I mean, I think the whole world's going to be watching the Bundesliga next weekend. And and I think it's going to be a great opportunity for Germany to really show off their top league. And, um, you know, the government and, and, and the clubs are working together hand in hand to figure out a, a safe and, and, and healthy way to do a restart. But, um, you know, it, it's exciting. In England, in the in the UK, the Premier League um, has not figured out how to get restarted, and and part of that is is you've got a league that is the very first scenario I talked about. They are a league that are owned and controlled by their member clubs. So you've got twenty clubs in the Premier League, and for them to make this decision means that the entire voting membership, meaning all 20 clubs, have to reach a, a certain voting threshold in order to um, pass a movement, to pass a plan, to say, you know, this is what we're going to do and, and, and we're good with it. So the sticking points right now in in getting this plan sorted out is that uh, is, is that the wealthiest clubs are are fine. Like they're they're like, hey let let's let's get restarted. Here's some options to do it. And and the and the clubs that are at the the mid to upper uh, table of the league are you know proponents of of a restart and here's how we can do it let's get going now etc it's the bottom and bottom or lower mid table that are holding things up so uh, this is out of the new york times while leagues in germany italy and spain take halting steps toward restarting the, the return of the premier league is being held up by an alliance of teams at the bottom of the standings they appear set on using the league's own bylaws as a cudgel in negotiations over a return to action as they try to spare themselves the risk of demotion to the second tier and potential financial ruin. This article's uh, Tarek Panja, who's been on the show. Um, what, what's going on here is you've got teams that are scared that they are going to going to go down they they would rather just stop the league and give themselves another year imagine that but um 
that's not in the best interest of the sport. And, and, and these clubs are just going to, I think they, they're just going to have to deal with it. Under the league's constitution, i.e. bylaws, 14 of the 20 teams must approve the plan, and without assurances of the necessary margin, there is nothing to be done but continue to talk. There have already been hours and hours of calls, largely going around in circles. Teams like Aston Villa and West Ham and others at risk of relegation to the second tier have hemmed and hawed about whether the integrity of the competition would be undermined if it was not completed in conditions similar to the three quarters of the season already played. Those games before the pandemic took place at packed stadiums, which are unlikely to be seen again until next year. One of the things that's going on as well is that the 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 longtime executive chairman Richard Scudamore, um, he retired, and so you have a little bit of a leadership void vacuum. Boy, does that sound familiar. The failure to uh, reach a consensus has stoked fear among some executives that time to complete the season will evaporate before there is an agreement. So, is that a shock that lower team clubs are trying to stall? No. Paul Barber, the chief executive of Brighton and Hove Albion, said neutral venues just simply changes the nature of the competition and what we would consider to be unfair and not the right way to go. My job is to represent Brighton and Hove Albion and our interests are staying in the Premier League. While the bottom six teams have formed an alliance, their ultimate aims differ. Those occupying the last three, three places want relegation to be waived for one season or the season to be declared void. Those just above them would prefer that the standings be frozen if soccer cannot be played again this season. The suggestion of no relegation with the league expanded to 23 teams to include the three promoted from the second tier was largely rejected Tuesday when Rick Perry, the chairman of the three professional leagues below the Premier League, addressed a panel of lawmakers. We expect three championship clubs to be promoted. The Premier League are aware of our position on that. The Premier League expects three clubs to be relegated, Part Perry said, adding that other options would lead to messy legal consequences. I think what what is what is ultimately going to come out of here is I I could see some kind of of special circumstance balloon type payments for the bottom three of the Premier League. Um I think that might be the compromise that gets them through. But the point here is that this league has to have all of its member clubs vote on something like this. Now, in America, the NPSL, which is a, an amateur summer, you know, Cape Cod style summer league, they play a couple months out of the season, a couple months season out of the year, um, typically kicks off for, for most of their teams. Some of their teams start a little earlier, but most of their teams kick off in May. They play through June. They do some playoffs in July and it's you know it's done I mean it's it's a short season they do not have year-round operations they're they're not they're not a you know 12 month um, you know type of league they're not engaged in in running competitions for nine to ten months with with big transfer windows or anything like that they're very you know short uh, amateur uh, season type league and they um, decided the board decided not the member clubs but the board decided um, early on in this pandemic to cancel the season and and so they pulled the trigger and uh, that was not all of the member clubs that was the board who, who made that decision and then uh, Recently, uh, news came out that they were were not giving refunds or or even partial refunds back to the clubs. That they were going to keep all the money. They were going to give credits towards the future. Uh, uh, you know, 
if you play, you know, next year, then you'll get a partial credit towards that. Uh, but they're keeping all of the money. And my, you know, I was asked yesterday about my thoughts on that. And, and my thoughts are simply this. If like the premier league, you get in a room and you, and you discuss options back and forth, back and forth. And that's the decision you come to and you vote and that's what comes out, and then I have no problem with it. You decide to do what you want to do as a league. I mean, that's what you're there to do. So I got, I have no issue. Where where I think um, things are off a little bit here is that these decisions are being made at a board level, not at the membership level. And I think that's a travesty of their bylaws. I think that is a major problem. And this is a time where the NPSL membership needs to put forth some amendments to their bylaws, the NPSL bylaws, to rectify that problem, because that is a problem. Um, to, to, to have these kind of um, special circumstances, this would, this would uh, easily reach a threshold in in terms of a you know bylaw situation that would say hey this is this is a situation that would would require the entire membership to vote on uh, as much as I bang on U.S. soccer if you want to propose a bylaw change because there's something at that level that needs to change any member can propose the bylaw and it will get voted on now the voting structure and all that yes that's a problem but any member could put that forth and that would have to go through the entire national uh, council at an annual general meeting to get voted through at a two-thirds majority very similar here to what the premier league's going through where where they've got to reach that level that threshold to push things through this, this can't be a committee that makes a decision. It's got to be all, all of the member clubs. And in the case of the NPSL, if that decision is not being made by the entire club membership about what to do and where to do and have that debate and, and vote, then I do think that's a mistake. Don't go around touting yourself as a member league that we are 100% member controlled league it's a non-profit but a hundred percent member controlled league when your board makes decisions because ultimately you're not a hundred percent member controlled directly it's more of a kind of a, like the like the united states more of a republic the members vote and then they give up their power to a representative in this case it's a board member and that board is deciding what to do for you and that's not a one purely 100 percent member controlled situation like the premier league so if i was a member club in the npsl i would have a problem with the board ruling on things like this without my direct input meaning my vote I may not win, but I want to cast my vote. And that's something that the bylaws of the NPSL, I think, need to be changed and altered to address. Um, and so as these clubs are, are doing reevaluations of how they do what they do, why they do what they do, etc., I think these leagues need to take a look at themselves as well uh, and, and learn. We would be stupid if we don't learn from these, the situation we're in right now with this pandemic. So, uh, you know, I, I hope that uh, I hope that the member clubs of the of, of the NPSL do take a, a long, hard look at uh, how they do what they do as a league. Um, because I, I do think there's some tweaks there that would uh, would make things uh, smoother sailing going forward for sure. Um, our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. If you haven't gone there yet during this pandemic while you're sitting at home trying to do some couch uh, shopping, 
You should go there today. DuckDickBrand.com. Use promo code DWSHOW. You'll get 10% off of your order at DuckDickBrand.com. We'll be right back after this with part two of our interview with Eric Winalda. week we were able to catch up with uh, Eric Winalda and uh, we're bringing you part two of that interview and we pick up uh, where uh, we start talking a little bit about Bob Bradley and others uh, making comments about things that need to happen in American soccer and um, so that's where we we pick up in this uh, in in this interview at the at the end of the interview, there's a there's kind of a, a cool moment, and I'll explain that when we come back. But uh, here is part two of our interview with Eric Winalda. How important is it that you have a former national team manager and, and a friend of yours who you've coached with before, Bob Bradley, who's with LAFC. Um, DeAndre Yedlin has spoken about this recently. There's been other players. Uh, Wayne Rooney talked uh, about uh, some of these aspects as well in a, in a recent article. Bunch of coaches, players, um, are, are starting to get more vocal about the fact that we've got to actually start engaging in, in the real business of soccer, which as you've talked about today on the show goes beyond, uh, you know, just a television deal. It goes beyond just one additional aspect. There's a lot of things to this, the player transfer market, the, the television deals, um, promotion relegation, sporting merit, not having these arbitrary, you know, boundaries on where a, where a club or a team can go and find talent, that they can go and scout anywhere. Um, you know, there's a lot of these comments that are coming out. How important is that to the, the conversation and progressing that conversation for the stakeholders uh, that are investing right now at the MLS level, at the NWSL level, as the, the uh, USL level? Uh, for them to, to continue to hear from these uh, people like yourself who are speaking up on these issues and saying, hey, this needs to get better. Hey, we're ready. We've got to, 
you know, it doesn't mean tomorrow we turn the lights on to everything, but we need to have a plan where people can start to plan and work through, okay, hey, by this timeline, we're hitting this target, we're hitting this target, target, et cetera. How important is that for, for the growth and future traje trajectory of the country? Well, I mean, it, you mentioned Bob Bradley, who I have a, a really wonderful relationship with. He, you know, for example, Bob, whenever I, I overstep my boundaries and I will say something critical, my phone lights up and Bob says, knock it off. He's like, he's like my dad. He, he, he's, he's, he really is terrific. However, you know, Bob has experienced it. Bob wasn't just the coach of the United States and Egypt. Uh, he, he also got to really live Swansea and that was unfair what happened to him that he got, he, but, but he understands that pressure and he understands that drive um, and, and the pressure that goes along with trying to get a team to survive. Um, and there are people like Jeff Cameron, who's been, you know, really, you know, we, we don't, we don't really respect him enough uh, for some of his comments. And Jesse Marsh, for example, who came out and said promotion relegation is something that uh, is necessary. It, it, it's not, it's not a coincidence that these are the people that are living it. You know, if anybody that doesn't understand promotion relegation probably has never lived it. It's just this thing that, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, who's going to do that, you know? Who's going to, you know, who's going to invest a lot of money so they can go down? This is the, the, the issue is when, when everything is properly structured, and we, you and I could go on for hours about this, and the television deals are in place, there really isn't, and the financial losses uh, and the, and the, the parachutes, which, which can exist to really save these clubs from, from uh, financial demise. The EPL didn't understood this better than anybody, but they saw what happened to Leeds, for example, and how they just, just buried themselves through bad investments and overspending. Uh, and a massive club like that, and it's really quite sad. A Leeds of today, that wouldn't happen. They'd probably bounce right back up. Um, and, you know, Ricardo Silva, God bless him, is, as much as a visionary as that man is, and uh, as much as I love the man, I love what he stands for. You know, his conversations – when he tries to explain this through television packages and the idea of promotion and relegation, people look at him like he's crazy. And, they, and then they, they, they just, you know, you're an outcast and you're bitter because you're not involved. Uh, when actually, if you really listen to the words uh, that coming out of his mouth, his, his, he's trying to fix this thing. Um, and he was willing to put his mouth, his money where his mouth was at a $4 billion deal to try and implement some of those changes which of course were, were stiff-armed immediately and it, and it, and it did you know, come to pass. But how important are they? It, it's vital. It's vital that we as a soccer nation um, get out of this mentality of the NBA or the NFL that, that you come in last and you get rewarded with the first round draft pick. Congratulations. You, you know, that's, yeah, how do you think that first round draft pick feels? <laughs> we work his right. whole life to be this good and this, this valued and, and basically, we're just going to pay you off to shut up and play for the worst team in the league. No, come on. That's, that's, that's not how this works. It, it really is a, a, a career killer, in my opinion, because there's, there's so many guys that, that, you know, in a different system, they, they get to, it's, it's an open market. You can, you can, you're going to go to the highest bidder. And, right. and you're going to get to go to Manchester United or Arsenal or Dortmund or Bayern. Or you, you know, you're going to get to, a, get to go where, where – it makes sense to you, not where it makes sense to the system. And that's another element of this, this whole conversation about the American ecosystem that I think a lot of people don't understand is you, you, you start when, when you have a, a sporting merit ecosystem, you, you now put the power in the hands of players in the, in the hands of coaches. You can, you can have some, some sense of self-direction. You know, you can, find a pathway that, that fits for you, that works for you. You can make choices about where you want to go versus being, you know, put in a system that's just kind of arbitrary. Like I don't really get an option to say where I want to play in a lot of cases when it's a closed system. Um, and you talk about like the recently the NFL draft, right? And you have all this, these eyes on these few days of television surrounding, you know, where are these guys going to go? And, 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 you know, if you're, if you're a, a, a player coming out of college to go to the NFL, you're, you're kind of hoping like, hey, I'd rather go later in the first round to a better team 
you know, and, and then, then top of the first round best you know, to a crappy team. I debate this all day, but the best quarterback, uh, people would say it's Tom Brady, right? Tom Brady came out of Michigan. What was he, like a six-rounder? Six-rounder, yeah. All right, so if he would have been high, uh, you know, higher up the, 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 uh, uh, the draft and he would have gone first, second, or third or whatever, and we, would have, you know, we wouldn't have been evaluating him on his 40 time, which I think was 4-6 or 4-7. It was pretty bad. But did he get into the fours? I'm not even sure. <laughs> but you look at some of the better players of all time, and what you'll find is that these are players that because they were locked away at some small college and then had to fight their way in through some tryout uh, and then got added to a team. And Bilicek is the best at this. Bilicek will go find the guy that fits, fits that little piece, but he's going to go find the kid that's hungry. Right. He's going to find the kid that is, is, is talented, uber talented, but nobody knows who he is. And you don't have to pay him a lot, and you're giving him an opportunity. And guess what? You're going to win something. So you know, Brady got, got lucky that, 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 that people like, you know, undervalued him. So he ended up at the right place at the right time. Drew Bledsoe gets hurt. Next thing you know, uh, six, what is it, six Super Bowls later, he's the greatest of all time? Come yeah, I don't, I, I don't know the exact number just because I'm not a Patriots fan. I love bo- Boston sports except for the Patriots. So um, well, sorry I, I, try to, I try to block those out. Uh, you know, it, it just – You get where I'm coming from. I do, I, I do. I think I look at I look at um, some of um, like if if we were to have that conversation about Clint Dempsey, you know, where did he come from and how did that happen? Do you do you know where he went to college? Yeah, it was um, starts with an F. It's got a Fordham. U. Was All it right. Fordham? Is it Fordham or Fur- was it Fordham? We don't even know. <laughs> now you're gonna make me Google it. Uh, How is that? It, it, but it's somewhere in, in Texas and it's not the biggest university and blah, 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 whatever. So my, my point is, is a kid out of Nagadoshes, Texas can end up being the best soccer player that, that our country's ever seen and have the career that he had. Um, and if you were to ask him right now, if, if you'd rather watch a soccer game or go fishing, he'd probably say, I think the fish are biting. So let's do that. Furman. Furman. I, I, it is Furman. Yeah. Is so it Furman? You threw me up and you said Fordham. Where the hell is Yeah, yeah Furman. Furman. Where is Furman? We're about to find out right now. Uh, this is my South point. Carolina. Yeah, it was South Carolina. I knew Fordham wasn't right when I said it because I, I was like, that's not in South Carolina. I knew it was in South Carolina. I apologize to all those people who, who, who hate me now because I don't know where Furman is. But my point is Greenville, South Carolina. Not was, far from where you were with the Silverbacks. Not too it, far away. It explains a lot, though. There's a lot of good fishing over there. But I, I do think that the, the lesson within is you never know where the next great soccer player is coming from. Is it Hershey, Pennsylvania or Nagadoshes, Texas? It doesn't matter if we, it's not a, a matter of, it's not a matter of, of controlling those environments. It's, it's a matter of monitoring them and, and giving opportunity in each market for um, there to be, you know, like not everybody's banned high school now. And, and, and I hate that. I hate that because high school is your first opportunity to really have an emotional connection to the shirt you're wearing. And by the way, there's a lot more people that come to high school soccer games than come to DA games. Do so you get to um, buy a multitude? <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not just your parents who have been told to shut up. So, and I, and not to get off topic here, but one of my proudest, um, moments as a, as a father was the other day when the DA uh, shut down and I was all right what does this mean because my daughter Tatum is in the, and she's having a great year they've shut everything down she's panicked now because um, you know this affects the, the, the recruitment you know getting a scholarship all that stuff and all those really cool conversations just kind of went mute because we we don't have anything to talk about uh, and you could debate whether the DA was good or bad or whatever, and her stats, and she was right up there with the best in the country. She comes into my bedroom, and she's almost in tears, crying, laughing, and saying, oh, my God, Dad, I get to play high school soccer. I get to play with my friends. I get to play for my high school. This is so great. I got to go call my friends. That's a real thing. That's a real moment. That's a, right. That we're not taking the decision you know, out of the, 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 
you know, this child's hands, this child, this, this young woman is, is now being told, hey, you can do that. We're not going to, no one's going to tell you that you can't do that. And it's, it's her opportunity to really uh, have uh, the one thing that I think she was, was, was missing in all of that is the enjoyment, the pure enjoyment uh, of playing and playing with your friends for your school and representing something. All of those opportunities exist in our country right now. You, you're from Alabama. I'm from, from California. There should be a club within close proximity to where I grew up that I should have asked myself, I want to be a part of that club. This is not, not because it's a um, homegrown, somebody drew a line. No, it's a connection to the club that I want to be a part of. That's my starting point. Gareth Bale, where did Gareth Bale start? Where, how did he end up going from Wales to, 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 to that? It was an incremental. And who would have thought a guy from Wales, it's a small little club, is going to end up going to Real Madrid and winning the Champions League final? Who would have thought that? Not a lot of people. But the opportunities, as each one of them presented themselves, um, that he took advantage of. Now, those are the things that I worry about, that, that there's some kid out there that's better than me and Clint and Kristen Pulisic, and, and, and they don't have a place to play. Right. They don't have anything to aspire to. They don't have anything to gravitate to. And, uh, you know, asking some kid in Nebraska who could be the best player we've ever had ever to say, no, 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 you got to go to uh, Real Salt Lake. It's the closest, you know, or you have to go to, to uh, FC Dallas because it's, that's, that, that's where you have to go. No, that's not, that's not the way this works. Yeah. And, and I, I think those who are in markets where they have access, there is a, a somewhat vertical pathway. You know, if I'm in, in the Dallas Metro area, for example, I, I know what my, clearly defined pathway is to to try to get seen to get noticed to get recognized to try to make it you know into a national team picture or whatever but if you're not in one of those kind of selected markets I don't think people realize the struggle that's there I I had a conversation the other day uh, with someone you know offline you know off the show just um, and we were talking about the differences of, of pay to play uh, soccer and, and the, some of the effects. And um, one of the things that I mentioned to them is if I have to pay money to move or pay money to travel, to get my kids into a, you know, better opportunity than my local environment, my local context, it's the same amount, maybe, maybe cheaper to take my kid to Europe and let him train and play in Europe than it is for me to go and, and have him play in some, you know, MLS, you know, to get, to get into the, into that pipeline, to get to MLS. Right. And so, uh, you know, I, I just don't think people really understand and recognize how our system uh, has created these artificial glass ceilings on giant chunks of the country for players who, legitimately the family, you know, has, has to have a a real conversation about, do we send our kid to live with somebody else? Do we have to move somewhere else? And look, if you're, if you're living in the middle of, you know, Timbuktu, uh, okay, that's one thing. I I get it. I, I totally understand. But there are a lot of places in the country where that, you know, that isn't, um, a problem, you know, um, it's the mentality of, a, of an actor who's from some small little town. If I can just get out of here, I can get to Hollywood, I can get to New York. It, it, you have to have that mentality of if I'm ever going to make it, I got to get out of here. I got to get right. out of here. And what that really means to me, um, and, and it's, a, you know, because the arrogance of the, mo- the movie industry is a bunch of directors and and, and producers who would love to know where the next, next super actor is, but they're not willing to go out there and find them. They're not right. willing to work, to really work. The scouting of players in this country is really the key. And I can tell you, and, and the Alfonso Davies story is hilarious because I know the scout that found him. 
and uh, he sent his first email uh, to Manchester United, uh, I think six years before, before anybody even knew who he was. And that really comes down to a scout who really knows what talent looks like. Mm-hmm. I was on a podcast or a, you know, one of these uh, with uh, Jesse Marsh, who said, he goes, it's amazing the mentality over here towards a 16-year-old talented player as opposed to what the way we look at it here or in America that, you know, it's, 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 it's Christian Pulisic. That's the same story. It was, a, it was a Jurgen Klopp who, who said that kid can play. That kid's got talent. We need to get him in the right environment to make sure that this doesn't go sideways. And that's how it happens. It, it, it's our, our federation, um, if you will. And, and our, our top league, uh, in major league soccer, they're trying to simplify it for themselves by these homegrown ideas because anybody within that line, you know, you have to, you know, you have to go to this team. That's just simplifying it for, you know, a group of scouts that, that, you know, it, it's a heck of a lot easier to just handle this little area than it is to, to really do your job. And, you know, I would love to see a different plan in that regard to, to figure out how do we scout this country where do we find these kids and how do, how do we take it from there? I mean, the, the funny, this is my little secret. Everybody says, Oh, how do you find talent? Cause I got really good friends that are top scouts for the biggest clubs in the world. Right. I'm not going to give you all my secrets, but at the end of the day, they're really out there in America looking for one kid. And this is a one club willing to spend millions to find one kid because guess what? They're going to make millions on the million. And they're willing to do that. So what I do is I talk to those guys and go, okay, give me six, seven, and eight. I don't need to know about one, two, three, and four. I can't afford them anyway. So right. give me seven and eight and, and I'll go from there. And that's, that's just my way of, of, of what you could call smart or lazy or I don't care what you call it. But I'm, I'm trying to find the kids that somebody else has been able to allocate their resources to really try and find and figure out a way to, to find a platform for that player. Last question uh, for today uh, is, is this in a, in an open sporting, uh, merit based, uh, type of system. Uh, you just brought up a point that I think we miss out on a lot by not having this system. And that is innovation. You, you know, you're talking about reaching out to friends and, and saying, Hey, I can't take one, two and three, but give me six, seven, eight and, and finding ways to be creative and innovative uh, you know, find that that bleeding edge where you can find a competitive advantage uh, in 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 your role. How how important is it for American soccer to embrace the idea uh, in our systems, uh, in our operations, in our leagues, our clubs, the this concept of innovation? You got you. What you mean? What what that means is, and. What we, what I think, and I think the Federation is doing a pretty good job of this right now on the coaching level uh, and on the, on the player uh, recruitment, they are understanding the importance of evaluation of a player within their own environment, their comfort levels, changing the, the, the stage is, is very difficult to, to young players. It's, it's almost like, it's, it's, it's almost like if, if you go into a ballroom full of people and you're asked to dance, how do you dance? Do you dance the same way when you're all alone in your house or in your room with your music on? No. No, you, you, are, you are free and you dance like an idiot. But something happens that's kind of beautiful in there or, or talented or whatever it is, you can't recreate that. And that's the innovation that I think we miss is that we need to be observers. We're observers. We're not facilitators. We're we're not, we don't invite all these. It's a, it's a long process before you invite 12 people to come and and play the game. Right. Long process. And then the conversations and and the mental aspect of it uh, are very important in those moments when you, but you have to, you don't know what true talent is until you've really seen what talent looks like. And they have to have the freedom to be able to do that. What that means is you got to get in your car and go get and go watch it. You got to go. You got to work. Uh, and 
that's that's I think people have been very receptive to my way of of scouting and, and my way of recruitment because I was the guy that was willing on a Sunday afternoon to alienate my family and get in a car and go to downtown LA, uh, very Hispanic neighborhoods that, you know, probably not the smartest place to go sometimes. Um, especially when, when they were, you know, Mexican nationals and they, they, they realized that I played from the United States. They, they wanted to know what car I was in. Right. The, the, the realities of that were go there and watch what it really looks like. Watch what Poku looks like on a dirt field somewhere outside of Atlanta. Go watch what Jaime Chavez looks like in, in one of these turf games that's surrounded by pot smoke, you know, and, 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 you, and you say, this is nowhere that, that he's in the vicinity of professional, but that kid is playing free right now. That kid's good. That's a good soccer player. And, you know, I, I, I could be critical of this, but I do think uh, scouts in America need to rely on their networks, on their friends. You know, I'm Ziggy Schmidt, God bless him and God rest his soul. And I know I'm rambling here. Ziggy Schmidt got in a car every weekend back then and he watched games that nobody knew about and he found players that nobody knew about. Not just for his college at UCLA, but he was an evaluator of talent. And then I'll never forget, and this is amazing that I can actually recite this, but I was 16 years old when I met Ziggy Schmidt. And I remember the conversation because he said something that struck a chord with me. And he said, I really like the way you play. Um, and I don't care if you never use your left foot. If you can cross it with the outside of your right foot and get to where the ball needs to go, then hey. And to me, that was like the first time that anybody had ever said, hey, why don't you, you need to work on your left foot. Right. And it just, it, it made me think differently. And we have it on video. We have, you know, my dad videoed this game of, of the Simi Valley High School Christmas tournament. And there's a guy sitting behind the goal over in the corner um, watching the game. And I scored two goals in the first half. And my dad is now with the camera panning because he's figured out that that's Ziggy Schmidt and he can't find He's gone. And so my dad is disappointed. He said, he's like, oh, yeah, I guess you've seen enough. And he starts bad-mouthing him. He's like, well, don't work too hard, Ziggy Schmidt. Blah, blah, blah. As my dad is berating him, Ziggy has, through his own little network, figured out where's Eric Winalda's dad. So my dad's got the camera, and he's going, yeah, okay, Ziggy, but Ziggy's standing right here. <laughs> and he goes, hey, Mr. Winalda, I'm Ziggy Schmidt. Um, Sorry, you feel that way about me. And we have it all on video. It's hilarious. But my dad. Oh, man. But that's that. See, you, there's a lesson within. Ziggy Schmidt did the work. He didn't live in Simi Valley. He lived 30 minutes down the road. But he got up on a, on a weekend to go watch some kid that somebody had told him might be worth looking at. And that person was me. That's the beginning of my career. The very beginning of my career was because of Ziggy Schmidt. Nobody else. Nobody else. Everybody else thought I was a long-haired, volatile, uh, a lot of things. But <laughs> Ziggy put me in that California state team, uh, and, and the rest is history. And, and if he didn't get in his car, and he didn't come watch me, and he didn't talk to my dad, my career never happens. So the reason why I'm telling you that is I just know that there's another kid out there just like me just like me, maybe better than me. There's a lot better than me, but we got to find them. Right. So those, those scouts got to, got to stop waiting until the, until they're, they get an email, you know, they got to get on the, on the horn, call their friends, find out, find out their little networks, get in a car, get in a plane. It's worth it sometime. Bonus, uh, bonus uh, question or, or comment here at the end. So last night I sent you a picture uh, and it was from Soccer America, uh, February 18th, 1988, uh, NCAA Division I Top 50 scores. And, All from Alabama. And, Kenny, Snow, Kenny Snow was at the top. God, I hated Kenny Snow. He had 28 goals that year, right? Yep, 28 goals. And there was, uh, the, was the three guys, top 10 from South Alabama. 
And you were, you were down at number 35 with 11 goals, 11 assists. What, what year were you in in college at this point? That must have been 1988. Yeah, it was 1988. 11, 11, wait, hold on. 11, 11 was 1987. So we were, we were freshmen. Uh, well, that was, that was fall, fall 87. This was February 88. So it would have been that 87, 88 year. year was over, right? Yeah. And our, our team went to San Diego State, went to the national final uh, against Clemson in Clemson and lost to uh, Bruce Murray's uh, group. Um, but the, the team to beat back then was Indiana. Yeagley had that thing rolling. Um, but it, it, it's interesting that you, that you sent that. And as soon as I saw it, I knew we were going with this. Is back then, if you didn't go to a big university, you, you weren't going to get looked at for the national team. Right. You, and I'll give Bora Militinovich a ton of credit. Because in 1990, end of 90, first part of 91, he didn't care where you came from. If you could play, you, you were going to make his list. And, uh, and he did some research. And he found guys like Mike Sorber. And he found guys like Roy Lassiter. Uh, and he wasn't afraid to dip into the MISL either. So he, he, was, he was willing to do the, do the hard work. But that was – I really appreciated that because that, that brings back a lot of memories. Back when I had hair. When I, yeah, yeah. Well, I know, there's, uh, I know there's some guys that went to South Alabama that are going to uh, appreciate this little bonus story here at the end. So, um, You know what? And they'll appreciate it. And, and they're also going to you know, have a, a bitter swallow there too because it's like, you know, what could I have been if right. I had been, uh, in the world today? Yeah. That's, 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 a, that's a hard thing to – it's a hard reality but. It is. Well, Eric, thanks uh, as always for coming on the show and, and for your time. Uh, hopefully, the, hopefully this pandemic settles down sooner rather than later. You can get back out on the field. We, we got to uh, see each other, your, your one and only USL match this season, uh, opening up in San Diego. And then we, we go home and, and uh, everything shuts down from there. So uh, maybe it was our fault. I don't know. But uh, in the, hey, but in the meantime, and everyone listening, take care of each other. Be smart. Uh, be safe. Uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what's right by my team. I would never put my, my team's health in, in jeopardy. But uh, you're right. Sooner than later, it is going in the right direction. But let's, let's not jump the gun. Let's, let's, uh, let's wait it out and make sure that when we return to play, everyone's uh, uh, not in harm's way. So it's, it's, it, it will be sooner than later. And I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that day. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, look forward to having you back on again in the future. And in, in the meantime, stay safe out there. All right, buddy. Bye. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them, it changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens.
Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in on this Thursday. Big thanks to Eric, uh, Eric Winalda joining us the other day and uh, having that chat. And we were able to bring that to you. Part one yesterday, part two today. I love what he was talking about there at the end about, you know, scouts being willing to go out and find the players. Um, and in that last story where we were looking back at the, the Soccer America article, a friend of mine had sent that to me. And, uh, you know, looking at, uh, you know, players who never really got a chance uh, 30 years ago um, to, to really do anything because the opportunities weren't there. Um, you know, if, if you weren't at a big school, if you weren't, um, you know, l- connected with the right people, you, you just didn't get, um, you know, a good chance, uh, a fair chance, um, you know, from a national team perspective. And certainly at the time, professional, uh, soccer in America, um, uh, was in the doldrums. So, you know, there just wasn't a lot of opportunity. Fast forward to today, and you can make the argument that there is even less opportunity today, and here's why. You have a, a few dozen uh, places to go, but there are millions of players that have no pathway. They, they, they are... Uh, effectively locked out, you can still be one of the best and still not have chances um, here in America. So it, it, it's not, even though we've got professional soccer, it's not that that much has has really changed in that time. And um, one of the you know things I I wanted to to end the show with today is looking at change and and what could change, how things could change. When I look at, at at the American youth uh, landscape, and this goes beyond soccer, but uh, youth travel soccer and the youth soccer experience is certainly um, a very large part of this conversation. There are these organizations that are trying to figure out a new normal for them and, and how to survive so they can get back to what they were doing and I just want to kind of leave everyone with this question. Why? Why should we get back to what we were doing? Why do we think it's a great idea to get back to what we were doing? There are things certainly that we could have done and that, that were good in the in in the recent past but a lot of it was just focused on the wrong things it was focused on money it was focused on gatekeepers it was focused on lazy scouting it was focused on taking advantage of families why do we want to go back to that i think in this this downtime just like I think the American professional leagues should take a, a long, hard look at using this opportunity, this situation as an opportunity to fix some of their issues in terms of their scheduling, get on a fall to spring calendar, honor the FIFA dates, fully engage in the global market. I think on the youth landscape, U.S. soccer has terminated the DA. There's never been a better opportunity for all of American youth soccer to rethink what we do because it's not good it's not producing world-class players and and i think there's a much better way if we look for it that is our show today i i I appreciate everybody watching you can always watch at danielworkman.com forward slash watch there you can find different options different platforms channels to watch the show on and we appreciate it as always we bring the show to you weekdays live at 9 a.m eastern standard time thanks for watching we'll see everyone again tomorrow